Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is Babbage, and I'm Jason Palmer, co-editor of The Economist's daily briefing app, Espresso. From the world of science and technology this week, how meteorologists are rocking the boat... They looked at these uh, lightning strikes and there was a pattern over certain parts of the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. And these patterns coincided with heavily trafficked shipping lanes. And avoiding the post-lunch slump. There's this notion that, well, if you stress somebody a little bit, they actually pay attention more. But first, it's that time of year again when scientists are awarded the most prestigious of prizes, the Nobels. The first announcement came on Monday for medicine. Three American scientists were recognized for their work on the circadian rhythm, the body clock. They were Jeffrey Hall, Michael Young, and Michael Rosbash. And ironically, Michael had his sleep disturbed by winning the award. I had my phone, the phone uh, on the night table by my bed woke me out of a deep sleep. And um, the, the gentleman, Thomas Perlman, yes, he told me the news. And uh, I, I was in shock, breathless, really. My wife said, start breathing. Or maybe go back to sleep. Our science editor, Jeff Carr, has been following the story. Tell me, Jeff, what is it this prize has been awarded for exactly? Uh, It's been awarded for an understanding uh, about how the circadian clock actually ticks. In essence, what the pendulum is that drives it. Circadian rhythm is uh, something that almost all organisms have. It's uh, something you would expect because the Earth's been spinning on its axis since the beginning, so there's always been day and night. Uh, Organisms have to adjust to that. Uh, What the prize is for um, is an analysis of how the clock works in fruit flies, but biology being what it is, that certainly tells us how it works in most animals. How exactly does it work? Well, fruit flies are used because way back in the 20th century, it was uh, discovered it was very easy to track mutations through them. Uh, You can often see the mutations in the flies, their eyes change colour, their wings change shape, whatever. And so a huge body of data uh, was built up on fruit flies. And they discovered um, that there was a mutation in a gene they called period, which scrambled the circadian rhythm. So they tracked down the sort of the locus, the... the, the yeah, they tracked down the locus, they sequenced the gene. Um, they found where it is. Yes. How's it work? It works by a clever piece of feedback. The gene produces a messenger molecule, uh, which goes to the cell's uh, protein factories uh, and tells them how to make the protein that the gene encodes. The factories then make that. It gets back into the nucleus, and that particular protein has the effect of shutting down the activity of the gene that encodes it. So you get less of the messenger molecule coming out of the genes. You get less protein manufactured. Gradually, the protein disappears, and then uh, you get more of the, uh, the protein manufactured. So uh, a little bit too too much makes a little bit less be made until there's a little bit too little and then a little bit more is made and that just happens to go on. Precisely. And it goes it goes on, on a circadian is derived from the Latin for about a day, circa dies. That chemical cycle goes on for about a day. It's then refined by all sorts of other proteins that are associated with the system, many of which the laureates discovered themselves. Some of those connect to the optic system so that the... 
uh, light coming in through the eyes can tweak the uh, circadian rhythm to keep it attached to the day. And uh, to to invoke the body clock is is almost to to raise that sort of perennial traveler's question about jet lag. Is this going to help us solve that that scourge of travel? No. Oh, why not? <laughs> Even if you found a drug that would uh, would interfere with the clock, it would be quite a risky thing to do because the clock controls all sorts of aspects of, of uh, biology, not just the, the sleep cycle. You might be able to cure jet lag, but I don't think you'd do it by interfering with the clock itself. Um, or, or you'd create all kinds of new problems. Exactly, yes. Next up this week was the physics prize. Ladies and gentlemen, we have detected gravitational waves. We did it. The first detection on Earth of gravitational waves, a phenomenon that Albert Einstein predicted over a hundred years ago, was announced in February 2016. It caused ripples not only in space-time, but in the scientific community as well. I am so pleased to be able to tell you that. Science correspondent Tim Cross is here with us. Who's won the prize for, for this finding? So it went to three people, which is the most the Nobel can go to, and that was uh, Rainer Weiss, Barry Barish, and Kip Thorne, all three of whom are astrophysicists. And on a scale of one to ten, how surprised were you? Uh, less than one, I think. This is probably the least surprising physics Nobel since the one awarded for the discovery of the Higgs boson, which was back in 2013. Um, that doesn't mean it was it was undeserved. And it's um, a sort of unusual piece of promptness from the Nobel Committee, because in theory, Nobel's will says the prizes should go for work done in the previous year. Which is not a rule they often follow. No, especially not in physics. I think something like more than half of the physics prizes uh, awarded since 1986 took 20 years after the work in question to sort of arrive on people's desks. So this is a, a nice nice bit of promptness that we don't often see. Um, let's wind back a little bit, though, and, and tell me a little bit more about gravitational waves. What, what are they? Where do they come from? How do we detect them? So they're ripples in space-time, which sounds... Which sounds awesome, right, but doesn't explain much. And, and, and is awesome. So as you said, they fall out of uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. And one of the many things that says is that the way mass sort of works is if you have a, a mass in space, it distorts the space around it. It's the usual analogy is you imagine a rubber sheet, you put a bowling ball on a rubber sheet, and it puts a big dimple in it, and that's sort of like what, what mass does uh, to space. And so one of the predictions is that if those masses are moving, they send little ripples out through space and time. And it's literally the fabric of space is is sort of warping. It's getting longer and shorter and longer and shorter as these waves go past. But it, but on an, just a minuscule scale. Yeah, so space is, is pretty stiff and it's quite hard to deform it. So um, the detection that these guys made uh, last year came from two black holes colliding, which is one of the most violent things you can have anywhere in the universe. Um, by the time it got to Earth, it was such a tiny little ripple that you needed this enormous you know, multi-billion dollar piece of kit to have even a hope of detecting it. Okay, so we've, we've proved Einstein right once again, I suppose, but uh, what, what happens now? Well, so we have, but that's not all we've done. So, so um, it's a Nobel Prize for proving Einstein right. It's also a Nobel Prize for opening up a new kind of astronomy because most existing astronomy, you look at the sky in some part of the electromagnetic spectrum. You look at it in visible light or radio waves or gamma rays or X-rays or infrared or whatever you want. Gravity waves are different. They're like a completely fundamentally different physical phenomenon. They're not on the same spectrum. They're not even the same force as, as this other stuff. So, so far, the instrument that detected them called LIGO, it's mostly designed as a detector, but you can use these things as telescopes. And we're, we're building more of them. One just came online in Italy. There's a couple more due in uh, Japan and India uh, pretty soon. And once we start detecting large numbers of these gravity waves, they will let us look at the universe in a way that we haven't been able to look at before. And it'll let us get to places that, you know, electromagnetic radiation 
can't get to. So we can study things like colliding black holes or colliding neutron stars. You might even be able to look back till pretty soon after the Big Bang, which we just can't do with, with standard telescopes. So it's the very, very start of an entirely new kind of astronomy. Right. Thanks for that, Tim. I suppose it's time to wave goodbye. I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. <laughs> Sorry about that gag. My, my producer made me say it. Uh, the last Nobel Prize was announced today. That's Wednesday, October 4th, 2017, for those of you listening through the archives. It was for outstanding contributions to chemistry. Till flera av er som var här igår när vi presenterade Nobelpriset i fysik. Men idag är det alltså dags för Nobelpriset i kemi. Last up in the science tag team today is Anano Bhattacharya. Tell me about what, what it is that won the prize. So the, uh, the prize went to three progenitors of a technique called cryo-electron microscopy. Sounds complicated. Now tell me what it is. Well, uh, much like microscopy, electron microscopy uses a beam of electrons to image samples. In the case of cryo-electron microscopy, those samples are frozen to protect them from the harsh beam. Normally, if you put biological molecules under an electron beam, they will get blown apart. By freezing them, you stop that from happening, and you can get some beautiful pictures of these little molecules. And so the idea is you kind of catch them doing their life's machinery thing, sort of in, in the middle of things. You can certainly do that, yes. Um, I think even more important is that the structure of these molecules at the sort of atomic level tells you a lot about what they're doing inside the cell. So if you can capture their pictures, you can um, also uh, figure out how they work. So the, the electron microscopy thing is well, well established, right? What, what did they do differently? How do they bring in the freezy bit? Right, yes. So Dr. Dubouche, who uh, is one of those sharing the prize, he pioneered the method that most researchers now use to sort of flash freeze their samples really quickly by plunging them into liquid ethane. Dr. Henderson, uh, the second of the trio, he was one of the first people to use electron microscopy uh, and turn it on proteins and managed to extract a really detailed image of, of one. And finally, uh, Dr. Frank, his contributions were sort of mathematical. So he figured out how to take these sort of two-dimensional flat snapshots that you got under the microscope and merge them all together to get a three-dimensional picture of the molecules that you're interested in. Freezer guy, picture guy, math guy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, well, congratulations to, to all three of them, Jacques Dubouchet, Joachim Frank, and Richard Henderson. And thanks to you, Arno, for coming in. Thanks very much, Jason. In a moment, how ships could be causing storms. But before that, I need you to get your phone out of your pocket and head to the iTunes store or to whatever app you're listening to and rate us. If you liked it, put five shiny stars on it. Why is that, I hear you ask? It helps us spread the word about Babbage, and the more people who know about it, the better. We can continue to make the podcast. Tell you what, I'll play you some cheesy music while you do it. You done? Thanks a bunch. There are many ferocious storms at sea, and while modern ships are able to withstand a battering, sailors still steer clear. So it's ironic, then, that these very vessels might be causing thunderstorms. Guy Kitty joins me now to explain a bit. Um, what, what I notice first about this story is that there is a worldwide lightning location network. 
That's right, yes. It's made up of around 70 sensors. And after analysing about a billion and a half lightning strikes over the period 2005 to 2016, Joel Thornton and his colleagues uh, thought something was a bit strange because they looked at these uh, lightning strikes and there was a pattern over certain parts of the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. And these patterns coincided with heavily trafficked shipping lanes. And the increase in lightning represents about a doubling in intensity compared to adjacent areas of the sea. So the implication here is that it is the ships themselves that are causing the storms? Absolutely, yes. For a long time, it's been known that ships cause clouds. And those clouds are caused by particulate emissions from ship exhaust. And then the researchers thought, well, if they're causing those very visible clouds, it's more than likely that those clouds are rising to high altitudes. The moisture in those clouds is freezing. And where you get frozen droplets colliding, you get lightning because there's static charge built up between those frozen particles, and that's discharged as lightning. But the clouds that are formed are high in sulfur because basically because marine fuel is high in sulfur. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, marine diesel is much higher in sulfur than the diesel that trucks and cars burn. But making clouds rich in sulfur compounds sounds exactly like something I've heard about uh, geoengineering, making clouds to reflect sunlight and, and help with keeping global temperatures down. Are there, are there implications for this finding for those who are thinking about geoengineering? Well, absolutely. That's the really fascinating thing about this research, because ships emit a whole range of particulate pollutants. They're aerosols, and those aerosols act as seeds for clouds. So the more water-soluble they are, the better they are at attracting water vapor from the ocean, and that water vapor becomes droplets, and they coalesce into clouds. Now, typically, clouds that form a sea are very low level because there aren't very many particulate pollutants. And that means that more water droplets form around a single aerosol than they would over land. And the droplets are very large. They don't, they're too heavy to rise to great altitudes. But if they're small, they do rise to great altitudes. And as you say, geoengineering has been posited as a possible solution to mitigating climate change. The idea is that you spray these particles into the atmosphere. They see clouds and they reflect sunlight. The problem is that clouds rising to very high altitudes have a reverse effect. They actually act like a greenhouse gas. Is it safe to say that we can guess then from this research that if that ends up being a tack that that geoengineers use, we can expect stormier weather? It's possible, yes. We might well experience stormier weather. um, But there are other things to consider, such as where you see these aerosols and the concentration at which you see them. Of course, out of a ship's funnel, you've got a high concentration of particles. But if you spread those over a much wider area, uh, then you wouldn't get such a concentration of, uh, of, of cloud formation in one area, and they wouldn't necessarily form into such big storm clouds. So there might be a way to avoid them. So It's not a finding that completely discounts the possibility of using geoengineering, but it certainly indicates that one possible consequence of geoengineering is indeed increased lightning. Right, and and points to a a solution at least for for getting ships in slightly less stormy seas, just simply use less sulfurous compounds. Absolutely. And and in fact, there is an IMO, an International Maritime Organization regulation, which will be introduced from 2020, and that will limit the sulfur content of bunker fuel to 0.5%. The average at the moment is 2.7%. Whether it's enforceable or not is, uh, is another question. But if it does work out, then we can expect to see a reduction in the amount of lightning over those shipping lanes that I mentioned earlier on. We will have to see. Um, if I may say, it's enlightening stuff. Guy, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Many thanks. Do you get the postprandial lull at work? 
Where time goes slow, attention is slippery, and work seems ten times harder? Fear not, we may have the answer for you, the standing desk. Okay, jokes aside, sitting is the new smoking. There's evidence aplenty to suggest that bums on seats for long periods is bad for our health. Indeed, here at The Economist, we just got new offices, and we've all got standing desks. But could the act of standing act as a stressor and detract from your attention? Or could it keep us more alert? In other words, is standing better for your job as well as your health? That's the question of some new research from Israel. And Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent, has been writing all about it for the newspaper. First question for you, do you stand or do you sit? I have a a, a very swanky standing sitting desk so I can move it up and down as I need. And, you know, it's it's so funny to having read this research. It made me sort of think back to the days right when I got the desk and whether I felt any real difference between uh, working while standing and working while sitting. And I think I do focus better while standing. I I had not really realized that before. Well, there seem to be a couple of sort of hypotheses about the effects that it may have that seem to conflict with one another. What, What are they? The long-standing notion was to stand up requires you to have a a bunch of muscles keeping your posture, and those muscles require, while you aren't aware of it, and I'm not aware of it, some degree of attention. You have to pay attention to stand. You can't be unconscious in standing. It doesn't work that way. And so the, the notion was, well, if you are giving attention to muscles to keep you standing, then that means you have less attention to give towards other things. On the other side of the field, there's this notion that, well, if you stress somebody a little bit, they actually pay attention more. And that was the hypothesis that the researchers moved into this with, and it it was the hypothesis they ultimately proved. Right. But, I mean, how do you go about testing this? It's called the Stroop test, Jason. I tried it yesterday, and it's quite a lot of fun. I mean, seriously, I'm going to tell you this over the radio, and you're going to think, well, um... That sounds really stupid, but honestly, go and look Stroop, S-T-R-O-O-P, online, uh, and Wikipedia has a whole page on it. The basic premise is this. You are shown words like red, blue, green, purple, and the words are in different colors of font. Sometimes the word red is actually printed in red, and sometimes the word red is printed in blue. No matter what, throughout the task, you are always supposed to say the color that the word is printed in, not the word itself. Turns out this is pretty easy when the word blue is printed in blue ink. But if the word blue is printed in red ink, it's very hard to say red when you're looking at the word blue. And even when I knew what I was testing myself for, I couldn't do it quickly. It took an enormous amount of attention to get myself to say the right colors. And this is the task that the researchers put towards the, the participants in their study. And they had some of them do it while standing and some while, while sitting. And so that then is a measure of just how much attention you've got. It is a measure of your attention at the moment. And the longer it takes you to respond to the stimuli that you're getting in the Stroop task, the less attention you have available. So if you're being very badly distracted and you're posed a very difficult Stroop task. It takes you, it turns out, notably longer to say that if you're sitting down than if you're standing. And the results were consistent across the 50 participants that they had in the study. Now, that's just a pilot study, but still, it suggests that you've got more attention to wield when you're standing up. The suggestion here also is that what's acting to kind of free up some attention is that you're being mildly stressed. Isn't that bad for you too? That is an excellent question, and it is not one that the researchers have explored further yet. Whether or not you are actually physically being stressed out in a manner that's going to raise your blood pressure and make you a less healthy person in the long run, I don't know. 
I, and I don't think the researchers know either. The only thing that they could tell, say for certain is that when standing up, you're able to solve the Stroop task faster. And the Stroop task is well known among psychologists to be a good measure of immediate attention. So what seems clear, at least at this stage, is better for employers, um, open question as regards employees. Well, I think that we know standing is better for you. There's so much literature on standing desks being a good thing, even if there is some mild stress that's associated with standing up. It's probably very much discounted by the fact that you're actually standing up in the first place and not sitting, which is so unhealthy for you. Gotcha. Well, then I will get on with standing to attention. Matt, thanks very much. My pleasure, Jason. Well, that's it for Babbage this week. I'm Jason Palmer. Thanks very much for listening. In London... This is The Economist. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.